Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast here at Yadkin County Public Library. This is Andrea. I normally am doing the Cozy on Up in NC Cardinal. And as I discussed on our last time I did my episode in April, is it was so much to handle with S.J. Bennett's Her Majesty the Queen Investigate series that we kind of dealt strictly with the book and review in the last episode. And this time we're kind of diving to like the royal tea, you know, all the uh, ins and outs and tidbits, because this episode is right here within a few days of the coronation of King Charles III on May 6th. So you're going to have to get up at like 5 o'clock in the morning on Saturday if you'd like to watch it live. Of course, there'll be lots of recordings. You can watch it at any point and re-watch it. So let's kind of dive in. Uh, I'll have the links to the book groups in the podcast episode description. But um, the book, of course, as a reminder, it's, it was really good. Her Majesty the Queen Investigates is available in regular print, large print, and in a CD audiobook in NC Cardinal. You know, it fits with this coronation theme we have going on, which is great. Um, the author kind of commented and tweeted on our podcast post and agree with her. It's the perfect time to be reading that because you're going to be hearing all about the British coronation here for the last, you know, couple months and especially this week. There's interactive maps on Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace on SJ Bennett's website. I'll have a link to that in the podcast description because those are really cool to have for understanding rooms and where things are even for things like the coronation. In the last episode, I dealt with kind of the fiction versus reality of specific characters and locations and events in the book, such as British intelligence agencies, Official Secrets Act, um, Easter Court, Queen's Birthday, Royal Windsor Horse Show. All of that is in that episode. So this time we're just going to drive in with kind of like how Britain is governed, kind of like a, a refresher, something to kind of be thinking about so you can understand and kind of appreciate the significance because it's been so long um, since 1953 when his mother was crowned uh, that, you know, a ceremony like this has happened. It's not something we see, you know, every four years like a presidential um, inauguration here in America. Instead, this is a, you know, rare event. It's not commonly seen. Might not quite understand all the significance of it other than, you know, you're recognizing that it's very elaborate and wealthy costumes and famous people, and it's a political event. But there's a lot of history and significance behind various actions, objects, and symbols. Um, let's take a look at the you know way things are governed, how things work, what is the monarchy to Britain at this point in the 21st century. That's a major point of debate and contention, of course, in Britain itself. Um, the Palace of Westminster is the location where the British government meets. So you're going to kind of hear that uh, term, Westminster Abbey, Palace of Westminster, mentioned quite a bit. So that is the seat of royal and political power in Britain. So kind of like saying Capitol Hill and Washington, D.C. here in America. The House of Lords is the upper house in Britain. So where we have the Senate, you can see where there's clearly significant influence and echoes of the British institutions in all of the places that were colonies ruled by Britain, even places that as early as, you know, roughly speaking, 1776 with in America and other areas that declared their independence, they're still influenced by um, what they had in Britain and what they were used to there. Um, not just the colonies in the 1940s and 50s after World War II that declared their independence and transformed the empire into a commonwealth, Instead, even those who declared their full independence, like in America, through war, 
they still were very influenced by it. So they have an upper house and a lower house, just like we have an upper and lower house in our representative government. Um, differences, upper house is not elected. Um, upper house of lords in Britain kind of holds the government to account by scrutinizing bills. Um, they regularly review and amend the bills before they go for royal assent, uh, basically trying to come to an agreement with the House of Commons. It has lost some of its historic power that it used to have. Um, historically, it used to be the more powerful house that would draft, create, and pass, um, you know, bills to the monarch for signing. Uh, whereas, you know, the Commons gradually through the years has developed more power, um, kind of similar situation with the monarchy in Britain. So they don't have the power anymore to prevent a law from being passed, except in very, very limited circumstances. The House of Lords can delay bills and force the Commons to reconsider. House of Lords is independent of an electoral process, so it kind of acts as a check on the House of Commons, because uh, often the House of Lords, people sitting there, will sit there for long terms, um, so they get to have, you know, years of experience and working, and, you know, they're not having to be elected, so it's an entirely different voice getting heard. Members of the Lords often take on roles in, as government ministers. High-ranking officials, such as cabinet ministers, are usually drawn from the commons, though. The House of Lords does not control the term of the prime minister or of the government. Only the lower house can force a prime minister to resign or to be able to call for a new election. Um, the House of Commons has a defined number of members, and the House of Lords, though, is not fixed. Currently, it has 777 sitting members. Um, the House of Lords is the only upper house in any bicameral parliament in the world to be larger than its lower house. Of course, the King's Speech, there's an entire movie about that um, that was made. But this is referring to when the monarch, kind of like we have, where, you know, the presidential address is given, you know, you know State of the Union. This is, once again, an echo. You can see that it has been pulled from the traditions in Britain. The King's Speech is delivered in the House of Lords during the state opening of Parliament. Um, it also was a part of the Supreme Court working that, the law lords. It used to be the, you know, acted as the final court of appeal until the Supreme Court was enacted in 2009 in Britain. The House of Lords also has a Church of England role in the sense that they help um, work with the Lord's spiritual and deciding rules uh, for the Church of England. So kind of pulled from the peers of the realm. Uh, so, you know, you'll see your dukes and your, you know, earls and all, all of the knighted people that are wanting, you know, that are part of this. This is where they're going to sit is in the upper house, the lower house in um, Britain. So kind of like thinking of it with Congress, with Senate and the House of Representatives. So this would be like the House of Representatives version. The House of Commons is elected and it's 650 members. They're called MPs or members of parliament, but the abbreviation is MPs. They're elected to represent you know, various constituencies and they hold their seats until parliament is dissolved. So that is where it's different. Um, from the system that was developed here in America, uh, where, you know, there's set terms, so you know which years are going to be election years for different, you know, parts of government between, you know, senators and presidents and mayors and sheriffs and representatives. Um, so all of that has set terms. Well, it's not a set term in the House of Commons. 
you can have a very short term. You may only have a government sit for a few months before it gets dissolved, or it may sit for many years. The House of Commons in England started to evolve in the 13th and 14th centuries, so in the 1200s and 1300s. So we're talking the later medieval era, just before, you know, the Renaissance starts uh, really influencing and changing things. In 1707, it became the House of Commons of Great Britain after there was the political union with Scotland, because, of course, that is when Queen Elizabeth I died, having no direct heirs. It then goes to King James of Scotland. So now there's a political union. And then with the political union with Ireland in 1800, it became, you know, the House of Commons of Great Britain and Ireland. And then, of course, there's been split-offs back again with Irish Free State, you know, Scotland uh, pulling away. So there's different, you know, where things had kind of been unifying and merging in, now it's splitting out. You know, that's the way of the world. Things are always changing. The House of Commons of Britain um, basically in the 20th century became the major political power. The House of Lords, between acts in 1911 and 1949, reduced their delaying and vetoing power to very, very limited circumstances. The House of Commons and the Prime Minister basically stay in office as long as they retain the confidence of the majority of the members of Commons. Um, they don't, the House of Commons does not formally elect a prime minister, and by convention and in practice, the prime minister is answerable to the House and must maintain its support when a vote of no confidence is put in um, or no longer hold a majority and get legislation passed. Then a new um, election, you know, parliament is dissolved, a new election is held, and you can have a new prime minister. Whenever the prime minister fall, office falls vacant, the monarch appoints the person who appears to have the support of the house or who is most likely to be able to command the support of the house, even if there's not an obvious contender. It's whoever seems the most logical to lead. It's normally going to be the political leader of the largest party that's in the House of Commons. And then the leader, of course, of the second largest party, party becomes the leader of the opposition. That's their official title. So just like we have the majority and the minority, and depending on how elections turn out in the House and the Senate um, in our elections. And of course, you know, they have the leaders of each of those, you know, the House majority leader, you know, the House, you know, the Speaker of the House. You know, we have roles that echo this in our government. Um, since 1963, by convention, the Prime Minister has always come from the House of Commons rather than any options being pulled from the House of Lords. Commons may indicate its lack of support for the government by rejecting a motion of confidence, passing a motion of no confidence. Um, they're phrased explicitly, such as this house has no confidence in his majesty's government, meaning, you know, the selection of the prime minister and how things are working. Um, you know, if you could not pass a bill such as the annual budget, that's considered a matter of confidence. If that can't be passed, you know, that's obvious that there's a loss of confidence in the House of Commons. The Prime Minister either has to resign or make way for someone else who can command uh, the confidence of the group. Or the Prime Minister can go to the monarch and ask that the Parliament be dissolved and have a new general election in hopes that whoever gets elected will then agree and maybe the Prime Minister can retain his position, his or her position. So kind of varies. It's a little different. Before 2011, Parliament sat for kind of anywhere up to five years 
Um, that was the maximum the prime minister could and often did choose an earlier time to dissolve parliament with the permission of the monarch. So the monarch still has a role, but they're not driving the government and choosing the legislation and making things happen in a specific way as it happened in many earlier centuries. Um, so, you know, at the end of five years, there's going to have to be an election in Britain, but it can happen at any point. The prime minister maybe decides that this would be a prime opportunity because of maybe a wave of public support to hold an election so that their you know party can retain the majority in the house and he can he and her can retain their position so it can happen change very uh the prime minister of the united kingdom is the head of government um they advise the sovereign on the exercise of royal prerogatives they chair the cabinet and they select the ministers in the cabinet a modern prime minister holds the office by virtue of their ability to command the confidence of the house of commons and they sit in with the members of parliament. They're not in a separate room like uh, where the president is not, you know, sitting in regular sessions of Congress. You know, they go do the State of the Union address. But instead, the, the prime minister actually is a member of parliament and is there at regular meetings. The office of prime minister was not established by a statute or a constitutional document, but exists only by convention. The monarch appoints them. In practice, the leader of the political party that holds the largest number of seats is most likely going to become the prime minister. Um, just by tradition, this role includes being the first lord of the treasury, minister for civil defense, and responsible for national security. Of course, the official residence is 10 Downing Street in London, just like you know, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is the famous address for the White House in America. The origins of the position are found in changes that occurred... Um, throughout basically during the glorious revolution in 1688 and onwards as political power shifted from the sovereign over to the parliament and specifically had to be managed by the prime minister. The sovereign is not stripped of their ancient prerogative powers and they legally remain the head of government. Politically though, it gradually became a necessity for him or her whichever monarch was in place, to govern through a prime minister who could actually command a majority and run the affairs of the nation. So the monarch, the monarchy of the United Kingdom, the UK, or the British monarchy as it's commonly known, does have a constitution, but it is a hereditary uh, sovereign and monarchy. They reign as the head of state of the United Kingdom and the crown dependencies like Guernsey, um, the Isle of Man, and British overseas territories. Current monarch is King Charles III, who ascended September 8th, 2022, upon the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. The monarch and their immediate family undertake various official, ceremonial, and diplomatic and representational duties on behalf of the nation and for various events. The monarchy is limited by this constitution. And such functions as bestowing honors and appointing the prime minister are performed in a nonpartisan manner, and that's what they commonly, you know, regularly handle for the government directly. Sovereign is also able to comment on drafted laws, especially if they directly affect the monarchy. The monarch is also the official head of the British Armed Forces, just like where we see the Echo and the President holding that role here in America. Although the ultimate executive authority over the government is still formally by and through royal prerogative. Nothing has completely stripped and eliminated that. 
Those powers can only be used according to the laws that have been enacted in Parliament and have been used as just long-standing tradition and practice. There's constraints of convention and precedent. The government of the United Kingdom is known as, depending on who's, in, who's the current monarch, his or her majesty's government. Because technically, they are still the head and the long-standing convention and prerogative as they do have the power. But they are not actually being able to use it um, in anywhere near this, the way they were previously. Sovereign has the power to dismiss, dismiss the prime minister. But the last time that happened was 1834. So it's basically at this point, once again, convention has been building, tradition has been building where pretty much monarchs aren't going to do that anymore unless there's like a major demand possibly by a political party or maybe a outside event or circumstance that necessitates it. Um, what happened in 1834 was when William IV dismissed Lord Melbourne from his post. So what has changed British royal power from where it was basically an absolute monarchy and could do as it wished, but conventions and rules started building, such as the Magna Carta in 1215, in 1603, when the Scottish and English kingdoms were merged together under James, of course, the sixth of Scotland, who became James I of England. That's, you know, official title in each country in those royal documents. Then they, with the Protestant uh, Reformation, changes in religion, Europe being split, England, of course, being uh, technically the Protestant side, but still there's a kind of like a middle ground. They're not um, as fully Protestant as some of the other uh, religions that were developed during the 1500s and 1600s um, that emerged in Europe. So they're not, you know, beholden to the Pope and the Catholic Church anymore. So they're Protestant in that regard. Well, there was a lot of debate and warfare and problems on, you know, who was going to be in control. And then if the monarch came to the throne and had a Catholic sympathies or possibly was a secret Catholic, that necessitated several um, concerns, revolutions, um, skipping over certain parts of the royal family tree to find a Protestant heir. This is leading to the Bill of Rights in 1689 and the Glorious Revolution in which a Catholic monarch that was going to be coming to the throne and then suddenly had the birth of an heir and then what looked like previously was going to be, oh, when he dies, we won't have to worry about it. His Protestant daughter will be in charge. Oh, he suddenly has had a son, an infant son. And, oh, we may be back under Catholic uh, rule or sympathies and issues. So revolution, they flee, and the Protestant daughter is brought on board. Um, so there's further curtailing of royal power, limitation permanently eliminating it to being able to go to Roman Catholic. So, you know, certain things by convention, certain things by law have gradually evolved and changed um, the royal family and how it runs. The Act of Settlement in 1701 assured the Protestant succession in law. Um, this is why after William and Mary, of course, and then her sister Anne, after they die and they don't have any heirs to be able to take over, this is if they have to move down the family tree so far to be able to find a Protestant heir. This is why the German Hanover family moves to England with George I. Because um, suddenly everything jumps from having been English and Scottish and, you know, various connections to France and other countries, depending on who they married. Well, suddenly we jump all the way over to the Hanoverian house in Germany. Um, 
in order to find a Protestant successor. So this is where all the George I, George II, George III, you know, everyone you learn about for the American Revolution, this is where they come from. It's because they had to find a Protestant successor. Now, the Hanover, Hanoverian house and um, the German last names as they were marrying, you know, Victoria, um, everyone who kept marrying and finding from Central European countries, uh, wasn't, of course, Germany politically at that point. They have to change their name to Windsor in World War One due to the anti-German sentiment. So, uh, you know, speaking due to ancestors, if you look at the family tree, nothing changed. It's not like suddenly a whole nother house was brought in. It's still, you know, this person had a son and daughter and moving on down, you can see the unbroken chain, but the last name changes to Windsor because of uh, World War One and World War II, what was dealt with in the early 20th century. The Balfour Declaration of 1926 and post-World War II, of course, dramatically shifted most colonies to being independent members of the Commonwealth. So once again, that shifts what the monarch is having to represent, be in charge of, visit, and how they're able to rule and appoint, because now those are independent members of a commonwealth. The British monarchy traces its origins all the way back to where there were petty kingdoms, small little tiny kingdoms, in Anglo-Saxon England and medieval Scotland. Those gradually consolidated into the kingdoms of England and the kingdoms of Scotland by the 900s. England was conquered by the Normans in 1066, so there's William the Conqueror. Then Wales was gradually brought under control. Process is all completed by the 1200s, when the Principality of Wales becomes a client state of the English Kingdom. And of course, to try and keep things calm, this is where the title of the Prince of Wales is brought in. So the monarch was pacifying Wales by saying, here's you, a specific ruler, so you can feel as though you're having representation and focus and you know, a ruler specifically for you, you're not just yet another merged client and tiny kingdom in this larger conglomerate. So the British royal family tree, currently, of course, you know, Queen Elizabeth II died. The first in line to the throne, King Charles III. His um, heir is Prince William, now called Prince of Wales, since everybody's you know, moved up one rung in all of their titles. And then, of course, his heir is his son, Prince George of Wales. There are other siblings. Charles has siblings Anne, Andrew, and Edward. He's the oldest uh, male child, but of course, with the change in the rules, whatever the first child that would have been born to William and Kate would have become the next heir, even if it was a girl. But they did have a boy, so it still looks as though it's based on primogeniture of male children, but it's not. They have changed that, so it'll be interesting to see in the future if there is an oldest daughter again, if that's where it will continue to go. Um, when that'll happen again, we have Elizabeth, of course. She was. Victoria was, but it's often rare because um, it will go to the oldest male child previously. Lots of other cousins um, and princes and princesses. So you can go find your family tree, get some pictures, and start figuring out. You know, everyone sitting in the audience at the coronation. That's always fun. Um, is the monarch really a monarch before the coronation? Yes, they are. The moment the previous monarch dies, they have the legal continuity of the monarchy in their hands. Um, they're kind of the de facto monarch. The coronation is there to basically formally invest the monarch 
through various rites and symbols and regalia in Westminster Abbey to make it formal. So that also, of course, in medieval and early modern times, everyone could come give their oath of fealty in person at a specific moment. It has always taken, you know, several months afterwards to get everything, you know, bought and prepared and actually hold the coronation. That's not just, you know, a modern situation. That's the way it's always been from the moment they ascended to the throne to the actual coronation. Takes a while. Coronation is basically a wedding. Instead of marrying each other like a husband and wife, there is a marriage to the state. The monarch is declaring officially the roles he or she is willing to take on and knows that they have to execute properly for, you know, the nation and then, of course, the nation in turn getting to say, you know, their vows of fealty and homage to the monarch. By law, of course, there's no need for this coronation. Uh, Charles is still able to handle all of his roles and official, you know, documents and processes just fine without it. Um, unlike, you know, the inauguration of the president, you know, there's an election and then they have an inauguration that's like making it really official because that's when the oath is given. This um, is not, is even less important in that regard. It's an official, it's a tradition, but it is not necessary for him to be able to sign off or do anything, you know, with nominating a prime minister, etc. Um, there's a lot of medieval symbols all the way back to, you know, seven, 800 year old chairs and crowns and the way regalia looks, actual physical objects as old as like the 1100s, the, you know, spoon that's used to pour the holy oil. There's lots of very long standing traditions for this. Of course, you've heard a lot about how this stone of Schoon has been moving from Scotland down uh, to London in time for the coronation. Um, it used to be kept there, but then, of course, as part of appeasement and the fact that it had been taken away from as spoils of war, it's given to Scotland back to keep unless there's a moment for coronation. You know, that's the only moment the monarchy has to have it. So the rest of the time it's kept back in Scotland. There's the crown. Of course, it has various gems and jewels on it that have long-standing historical significance, such as items that show the reach from you know, trade routes in the Middle Ages. There's the Black Prince's ruby about Prince Edward in the 1400s that's on the crown. There's various diamonds from Africa and India that have been cut and mounted in scepters and crowns that shows the kind of the colonial history. I mean, that has happened. But there's a lot of, you know, issues and strife with that because it is there are those are objects that have been taken or considered rightfully owned, you know, not paid for taken from colonies. So something to consider. And it'll be interesting to see if any of that changes in the future. Um, ceremonies and traditions hold a lot of importance for the British sovereign. One tradition is conducting, of course, coronation ceremonies at Westminster Abbey. The last Anglo-Saxon monarch, Harold II, was coronated in 1066 at Westminster Abbey. Of course, William the Conqueror is coming over saying he has his claim. He defeats Harold. Harold so we have a new, you know, family line starting at that point. But ever since, um, Harold, this is the location that's been preserved for conducting all coronations. Kind of, of course, it was William showing, William the Conqueror showing he had, you know, 
he was respecting these traditions and that he, you know, had just as much right because he was going to use it just the way Harold had done it. And then, of course, tradition continues. Houses of Parliament, Big Ben, of course, uh, all stand directly across the street from Westminster Abbey. This is, of course, where, you know, the royal weddings, William and Kate, it's all held. Funerals are held. So symbolically, this is showing how the sovereign and parliament work together. They're literally across the street to handle the political affairs of the country. The coronation chair of Westminster Abbey was built for Edward I between 1297 and 1300 in its very remarkable artifact to actually have survived the Middle Ages. Of course, the Stone of Schoon, uh, seized in 1296. Um, they had been used to crown Scottish kings. Then, of course, because it had been conquered, England uses it. Um, it was returned to Scotland in 1996, and its stone is only brought back when coronations need it. There's lots of regalia you will see, and you'll hear all the commentators describing the cloaks and the jewels and the spurs and the coronation spoon and the rings and the various, there's different kinds of crowns and scepters and swords that will be held. But let's get into kind of just right quick. What's the point in having them and what are these things? So there will be the royal mace that is carried and is laid. The royal mace um, has been a symbol of royal authority for more than 1,000 years. Keep in mind, you might be like, oh, this is a British thing. Many of houses of parliament and government across the world, including here in the United States and in British parliament, have the mace kept as the symbol of power. Now, of course, in Britain, this is representing directly the monarch. Um, in other places like Australia, it's not necessarily representing representing the monarch directly anymore. They're part of the Commonwealth, but it is still a symbol of power. Clearly here in America, we still have a mace as well that's held. But it's all symbols of authority. It's just whose authority that the allegiance is to varies and like how direct that authority is. Um, what a mace is, it actually used to be a weapon, just commonly used in the medieval period, uh, just like, you know, swords. We all recognize those as weapons still, but that's what a mace was. The one in England has various symbols and emblems for England and Scotland, like roses and thistles, all wound around it um, to recognize the various nations that now make up the United Kingdom, such as, you know, Wales, Scotland, England, and Ireland. It's carried by the peers ahead of the monarch as they're walking during the coronation procession from Buckingham Palace to Westminster. Maces are used during the state opening of Parliament. And it is laid there on the table while Parliament is in session as representative of how they are ruling under prerogative of a monarch. Monarch is symbolically represented there and does not have to be present. House of Commons can only lawfully operate when the royal mace is there. Um, a lot of these symbols and items, though, as will be described when you're listening to the commentators, they had to be remade after the English Civil War and the brief period when they were ruled by Cromwell and Parliament directly with no monarchy because they chopped Charles I's head off. Well, then Charles II comes back. He's going to be brought in as the next you know, monarch. We're going back to having a monarchy with, with Parliament, ruling alongside Parliament. So they had to remake a lot of these swords and various emblems and maces because things had gotten melted down, sold, or disappeared um, with the Civil War. So 
A lot of these are replacements. There are a few items like uh, the spoon and the chair, etc., that have survived authentically all the way from the medieval period. <laughs> Let's see. Sword of State is another item that will be carried in front of the sovereign on formal occasions, symbolizing royal authority. There's actually several different swords. You can listen for all their different titles. Swords of Offering, Swords of this and that and the other. Um, let's see. Gosh, there's so many titles. Sword of Temporal Justice, Spiritual Justice, St. Edward's Staff, the Sword of State, the Sword of Mercy, and the Mace all represent various spiritual and temporal or like, you know, real um, power and roles that the monarch has, such as meeting out justice and, you know, running the army and heading the Church of England. Various swords and staffs and maces representing all of that are going to be toted around, carried and laid at various points and held at various points, strapped onto the monarch after certain points in the ceremony. Um, so just keep an eye out for all of those. They're symbols of like a political authority that that person has. <sighs> Scepter and orb. Um, a lot of these symbols represent how the king is the protector of good, punisher of evil. The archbishop and other people will be blessing and providing various things, showing how the church is involved and in working with the monarchy. And the monarch is the head of the church in England. Scepter and orb is something you'll probably recognize from any monarch you decide to look at in their official portrait, especially in England and other places that have long-running monarchies, particularly that stretch back to the medieval period. These are symbols that have a lot of religious and temporal power combined into a physical symbol. So the scepter, of course, long stick, looks like a rod. Uh, this is clearly dealing with the temporal power, how justice and rule and might and the military, etc., were handled by the monarch. So that's what you have the scepter there for. Other symbols, crosses and things may be etched onto them, mounted onto them, different jewels having long-standing traditions and power mounted onto them. But that's, in its essence, it's showing the temporal power. Now the orb, the round ball with the cross on top and the, the lines divided into three segments, that bands that kind of stretch over the orb. The orb is a symbol of the earth in its round form. The three segments kind of represent in the medieval period, the known world in their mind. They thought there were three continents at that point. So that represented the three continents. The cross being mounted at the very top where all the bands joined together is showing how Christ and God are overall. And the sovereign holding that shows how they're ruling by divine right of God for that nation. So they are sitting in their chair, holding the world in their hands. Um, it's symbolic of the sovereign's kind of Christian power and their might directly being connected you know, to God approving of them being on the throne. You'll see this kind of echoed in other cultures in different ways, uh, but this is how it works in most of Western European nations who have a history stretching back to the medieval period. Doves and crosses and all that is reinforcing the spiritual role in various swords and orbs that the monarch is holding 
or has sitting near them. They may not have to hold them anymore, but they are going to be sitting near as symbol of this person has control and ownership of these powers. There's going to be anointing ritual. It's going to be private at a certain point where the monarch is going to disappear with a churchman to have an anointing ceremony. This is where consecrated oil is going to be dispensed onto the medieval spoon from the 1100s. It's a religious occasion and ceremony element that is including where basically the monarch is being consecrated and becoming you know, the direct head of the church and priest and intercessor. Um, it's Church of the England reminding everyone that they um, recognize the monarch as their supreme governor and that they're working directly with them. Cameras most likely are going to either pan away or they're going to go behind a curtain somewhere. After the benediction, you know, the anointing, there's go, the sovereign is going to rise from the chair, be taken over to the throne. And at this point, they're going to recite their oath. And then all the archbishops, bishops, and uh, officers of the state are going to swear their loyalty to the sovereign as the defender of the faith and the head of the realm. And that they're going to serve and protect and help them. Um, so you're going to see it happen both directions. Uh, the monarch, of course, putting on the ring, showing that they're married to the state. They're going to protect and handle all of their roles on behalf of them, the nation, all the people, and vice versa. So kind of keeping an eye on why, maybe the importance politically as far as they can't rule directly and absolutely without control anymore, but they are still symbolically the head of the state. So lots of cool things that you'll get to see. Take a look at it. I'm sure there'll be lots of clips online and discussion. Um, you know, take a look at some of the debates and things that have been going on and how they've changed the anointing oil uh, this year, how it's been made, um, you know, the traveling of the stone from Scotland, um, you know, setup of all of the horses and carriages and figuring out the procession route. It's all elaborate, but this has been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. So take a look. Even the ceremony and script has been passed down in a book since the medieval period. So take a look at it. It's really fascinating to interesting to see. And we'll be back later this month with another cozy mystery.